0: On today's episode of Let's Talk Drones, the podcast, we have Jordan Handworker of Jordan Handworker Visuals on Instagram and Twitter, as well as Shoot, Edit, Repeat on YouTube. This episode of Let's Talk Drones, the podcast was made possible by Tie Dot and Embroidery. Look, no matter if you have a team, company, or organization, you want to make sure that you look the part, and that's where Tie Dot and Embroidery comes in. They specialize in logo application for team uniforming, corporate apparel, and so much more. So no matter what you need to look the part that you want to play, Tie Dot and Embroidery can help. Check them out online, dot com. That's Tia Embroidery or Tia Embroidery. Embroidery.com. You can also find them on Facebook. Make sure you reach out to Chris, Rachel, Corrine, the whole team at Tie Dot and Embroidery. They'll be sure to hook you up with a quote as soon as possible. That's Tie Dot and Embroidery, tie or on Facebook. What's up? It's Chris, the drone geek, here with the inaugural episode of Let's Talk Drones, the podcast. And it is my honor to have Jordan Handworker as our first ever ge- guest on Let's Talk Drones. Jordan, how's it going today? Good, man. How are you? I'm not too bad. I'm not too bad. I was really excited, and, and, and not to, I guess I probably shouldn't say this, but it's, I'm just going to tell you the truth, be transparent. A third time's a charm because I had two other people lined up ahead of you, <laughs> and those two people bailed. And then you jumped into the first spot. So, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to have you on first, but you were scheduled third. And I guess third time's a charm is sort of the, the way that I'll go about
1: that. Hey, man, you know what? I'll take it. Uh, I'll <laughs> take anything I can get at this point right now. <laughs> so... Um. That- this is our first episode and I even
0: where I'm at right now with what I'm doing, I'm still very much in the infancy of what I'm getting going on YouTube and Instagram and my, my social presence. And I know that you're sort of in the same boat in some aspects, but just to kind of establish who we are, what you do, who you are in relation to me, can you give us a little bit of background on what you do uh, just so we can sort of get the conversation
1: rolling? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I'll try to make it as short as possible, I guess. Uh, (laughs) Well, I, I received my very first drone um, like three years ago. It was like a little Hollystone FC 181 or something like that. Little Wi Fi drone. I uh, fell in love with it. I fell in love flying it and uh, it decided that it wanted to fly away on its own one day. So, <laughs> shortly thereafter, I picked up my first like. GPS drone so I got a little DJI spark and I mean that's kind of the drone that set everything in the course for me like I loved flying that thing and then a little bit after that I wound up picking up a phantom three standard which that was a crazy drone Uh, I had a few instances where I was trying to do some like um autonomy stuff with it i forget what it was like. i was trying to track myself with that drone and for some reason i'm not sure why but phantom standard did not like that and that tried to fly away but luckily that had uh what was that what do you call it when you flip the switch uh oh the return to home function yeah it uh it wasn't return to home no it was like where you could just fly it without gps i forget what they call oh. it
0: uh, yeah, uh, it's not sport mode. I know what you're talking about.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I had to do that, and so this way I could regain control of it. But uh, other than that, yeah, yeah, I, add, that was actually mode is what. Yeah, a- attitude mode. Yeah, that's what yep. it is. See, that's what happens when you when you have a Mavic and it doesn't have attitude mode. You forget what that mode is. <laughs> you do. And the, the drones have come
0: so far, and I'm in the same boat as you. I, I never had the, the Spark. So when people tell me about the Spark, it sounds cool. And I was actually thinking about buying one before I moved on from my Phantom. But just like you, one of my first drones was... Uh, A Phantom Three, and I can attest the same thing that those Phantoms were probably the one of the best drones they put out in terms of a a non-compact drone.
1: Yeah, yeah, I actually I preferred the Phantom. I mean, maybe just because it was obviously a little bit bigger, it wasn't really like compact, so you couldn't really take it anywhere without having like a giant case for it. But I actually really enjoyed that drone more so than the Spark, Mm -hmm. but. The Spark was just more compact, so I wound up keeping that instead just because it was easier to travel with. Um, but the Phantom, if that would have had, like, some OcuSync or something on it, like, just being able to, like, not Wi-Fi, but I think that would have been a lot better, especially now with you see the Mini 2s and the Mavic Air 2s and stuff like that. Like, they all come with OcuSync. 2.0 or whatever it is and it's like man if they would have put that onto the phantom like standards and stuff back in like 2017 2018 whenever they came out with it like i think that would have been a game changer for the phantom lineup but oh for
0: sure and i the the problem i because like i said i had the phantom three and one of the problems that i had and i know this was pretty widespread with phantom three owners in particular the gimbal usually ended up having some sort of a malfunction along along some line and in some capacity. I know some people that had the shock mount boards just go bad on them. So they'd get like really shaky footage and they'd have to get it replaced. And that was a couple hundred bucks. And for instance, mine, that happened to it. But then the other thing that happened to it is the gimbal, no matter how many times I auto calibrated the gimbal, it just wouldn't stick like it would slowly creep up as I was flying and it had nothing to do with like wind gusts or force that you know against the drone or anything like that it was all just I could let like, it sit there on the ground and the gimbal would just slowly pan up and you know you can only have it sent into DJI so many times before you're like I, I, maybe it's time for a new drone at that point
1: yeah um oddly enough that you say that my spark did that too after a little while. So I'm not really hundred percent sure. Maybe it was just maybe wearing tear. Cause I purchased my phantom used off of a, a kid that lived around here. He wasn't really straight up with me about that thing. And so like I actually wound up having to take that to somebody to fix it. There's a guy that's local about an hour South of me in Tampa. And, uh, he actually fixes drones. Um, I forget the name of his company, but he's pretty close. So I took it to him. He fixed everything up. He got me, uh, I forget the name of the little cable that runs from the gimbal to the drone and stuff like that. He had to replace that and a couple other small pieces. But basically once he did that, he I mean, it was fixed. And uh, I actually wound up losing money selling that drone, but... That's, that's largely how it goes though. I mean, it... it-
0: I sold my phantom three and I lost money on it as well, but it was like one of those deals where I either have to move this or it's going to sit here and collect dust and it's just going to go bad from not being flown or maintained properly. So, yeah. but you, that, that brings me back to a point uh, that you just made that you brought up. The guy that you went to was in Tampa. You're based out of North Florida, correct?
1: Uh, I wouldn't say North Florida. I mean, we're more considered like central Florida. So I'm clustered together with like Tampa, uh, Newport Ritchie or Pasco County and Fernando County is where I live. And then there's like Ocala and Gainesville. So, I mean, I'm right around in that area, Citrus and stuff like that. So, and, um, North, you, Florida, North Florida is up there.
0: What do you, what, what's your biggest challenge when it comes to, because I've been to Florida a few times, but I've been to like the Delray Beach area. Uh, you know, Fort Lauderdale in that particular area. What's, what's it like dealing with any kind of drone regulations that like counties or townships have now, obviously the FAA takes precedence. So like, as long as you have a, uh, you know, class G airspace, you're, you're good to go. But if, if there's any launching or landing
1: codes, how do you deal with that or is it real strict there? What's it like? Um, So I would say around me, there's a class D airspace. There's a KBV, which is our little Brooksville Brooksville airport. Um, Don't really have too many issues with that. There are a few runways. So I don't know how to explain this, but like our main road, which is US 41 also runs along the uh, inbound For airplanes so that's actually kind of like a no-fly zone portion of brooksville but other than that uh, i mean i don't really have a whole lot of issues here getting any sort of clearance or anything like that um i mean even if i have to i use kitty hawk to gain access if i need it uh if i go down to tampa it's a little bit more difficult just because you have tampa international you have Clearwater, St. Pete Airport, then there's also McDill, And then on Davis Island, there's Peter O'Knight, which is kind of close to like the downtown area of Tampa. So there's a lot of air traffic uh, in Hillsborough County. So, I mean, if you go down to Tampa, you're basically having to request airspace if you can get approved for it. Um also, probably, depending on if you're flying commercially, I mean, obviously, you're probably going to want some insurance, but I would also probably think that even if you weren't, like, I haven't gotten to the point where, I like, I was in downtown, downtown. I've kind of flown around the outskirts, but I would think that at any point in time, if anything ever happened, because there's been a few times where I've been in Tampa and I've seen helicopters flying pretty low. And so once I heard that, I basically brought my drone down and kind of packed it away just because I didn't want to like get trouble type of thing. But uh, do, you, do you do what I do? Like when I'm
0: walking here, even though I'm not flying my drone, if I hear like an airplane or a helicopter overhead, my immediate
1: reaction is to like snap up and see where it's, you know, where it's coming from. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I, I would think that most anybody, because I mean, there hasn't been, you know, an absurd amount of instances where you know planes and helicopters have come in contact with drones. But mm-hmm. I mean when I was studying for my Part 107 test, like it what I used was remote pilot 101. So like Jason Chapper, you know, giving all of your information and stuff like he really kind of drilled it into your head. So it makes a lot of sense. Um if you're in an, a controlled airspace or if you're around a controlled airspace like I always kind of like try to keep my ear out. Like I don't really fly super far. I don't go past visual line of sight, especially here in Brooksville. I mean, there's really not a whole lot of like very interesting things to look at from the sky besides woods. Uh, downtown Brooksville is kind of cool, but it's kind of small. So I mean that right there, there's not like, like I said, there's not a whole lot, but I mean, anytime I hear planes or helicopters i mean i just kind of look around and if it looks low i'll bring the drone down but i generally tend not to go over like 150 to 200 feet AGL, anyways yeah so there's that Um, i know some realtors want you to go like as high as you can to get pictures of like subdivisions and stuff but
0: yeah you and i've had that conversation before on instagram because that's sort of how we got connected is through our instagram profiles but Yep. We've had that conversation. How it's it's not really once you get past 200 feet AGL. It, I mean, it all sorts of, sort of starts to look the same. So yeah. there are some cases where 400 feet is required, and you know there are those exceptions where you can go beyond 400 feet if there's a structure or something like that nearby. Right. But overall, I'm we're in the same boat that you get over 200 feet and it doesn't. It, there's nothing special about it. You know, you sort of have to be a little bit closer to be make it interesting.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I would say probably. Florida I would say is probably like the exception because like the higher you go the smaller things look because like it, I mean you're up in Pennsylvania right mm-hmm. so you guys have like beautiful surroundings you got mountains you got all types of like like historic towns and stuff and so I think that that kind of mixes in like if you can get a little bit higher you can kind of get like the elevation and stuff just because the mountains make the towns look so small mm-hmm. Um, but for Florida, like I don't know, I've flown around the beaches and stuff before, and it's like anything over two hundred. I mean, like it doesn't really add anything to it to me personally. I mean, that's just me, but I don't know. I, I think flying a little bit closer to the ground, you get a little bit better imagery.
0: Um, yeah, and, and you're a filmmaker too, and you, you, we were talking a little bit before the we started recording about some of your aspirations for some projects, and we'll get we'll definitely jump into that. Uh, but in terms of my philosophy on how to use the drone. And I I feel that you're probably right there with me. When people ask me what my drone does and what it's capable of, I I see it as A, a, the tool that can go up 400 feet and get that aerial footage that you need very, very easily. But B, really what it is, it's the camera on a tripod that can navigate 3D space. It doesn't matter if you need me at 400 feet or five feet. You know, my drone can do everything that a dolly camera can do. Within reason, I mean, obviously the cinematic cameras take it up a step, you know, well beyond the Mavic Two Pro. But really, if you're doing something that's maybe just a, a, you know, a commercial for TV or doing some sort of online advertisement, any kind of photography like that, it doesn't need to be super cinematic quality. The drones that they make, prosumer drones, Mavic Twos, Phantom Fours, things of that nature, they're going to get the job done, and they'll, you can do a full project on those most of the time.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean. Uh one of my very first like gigs right after I actually passed my part 107 I had a lady she wanted me to come film her she owns a bar down in Lutz which is about 45 minutes or so from here but she just wanted like all drone footage and stuff um so just being able to not really even having to like film anything inside I mean just getting various angles from the air of her property and stuff like that. So, I mean, you can definitely use just a drone. Um, it's definitely a tool. And I mean, depending on how you use it, what kind of shots you get. I mean, if you're doing like, uh, like raise ups and then like tilting down the gimbals, um, I'm at a loss of terminology right now for
0: (laughs) the there's there's the rise ups the the i know what you're talking about the tilt downs where you're you're the drones going up but the cameras going going down right yeah um Um, there's dronies where you you pull back and you sort of reveal everything uh and then the only other
1: one that i can think of
0: is like an orbit like where you're just going around uh,
1: parallax um yeah i mean there's there's just there's a lot of varying degrees of what like how you can get good cinematic footage with i mean pretty much any drone i use the spark for that i mean it's 1080p at uh, 30 frames a second so if you drop it in a 24 timeline you can put that down to 24p and you actually smooth out the footage a little bit more that's actually how i film on the mavic 2 pro mm-hmm. i shoot 4k 30 and then i just drop it down to a 24 frames per second and a 24 frames per second timeline. And it actually seems to smooth it out because I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I've noticed on the Mavic 2 Pro in 4K24 that there is a little bit of like a stutter in the image quality. Um, I think filming in 4k 30 kind of like renders that a little bit better but maybe yeah. it's just something that I've noticed but
0: yeah and that's that's something that I, I you're not alone because that's definitely something that I've noticed in many other people that I've talked to as well I recently posted a video to my Instagram one of the first comments somebody put was uh, it was it had a stutter I think that's the exact word that they use it's a little stuttery is what they said and it was because I had it set at 4K24 for a project I had just shot as well. The the lead on the project wanted it 4K24. So I typically also shoot 4K30 because it's just so smooth. But after I doing a little bit of research, it, you can't eliminate the problem. 4K24, you're always going to have maybe a little bit of a stutter on a right. drone anyway. But if you take that that orbit or that movement that you would normally do at regular speed and you do it at half speed to slow your movement down a little bit, the 4K24 can keep up then. But if you're right, if you're doing like a real fast droney backwards and you're shooting a 4K24, it's going to be choppy the whole way up because it just can't quite keep
1: up with the speed of the drone itself. Yeah, and... I mean, it, there's always the possibility, too. I, I've talked to some people about this. It's like, So, Mavic 2 Pro, I mean, you have the option for 1080p, I think 120 frames a second, and then there's 2.7K to 60. And I don't think that there's enough, like, unless you absolutely need to punch in. Um, I mean, if you have the option to just film in 2.7K, at 60 frames a second and just do like some flow mo with that i think that you're probably better off now that's to say like if you needed to punch in then maybe not as much but i really don't think that there is a loss of image quality compared to 4k to 2.7k especially when you're that high up with a drone but that could just be my finding on that so i don't know maybe maybe it's just something that some people might want to consider um and you sort of come at it from a, like a lot of people do this but you come at it from a different
0: perspective than like somebody like myself you started as a photographer and filmmaker correct like that's that's what you did first before getting into drones
1: no actually. oh you didn't no yeah so I mean i I would do like stuff with my cell phone because I didn't own any camera gear at the time but I actually I mean drones were my very first like step into any sort of like photography and like I want to say maybe back in 2004 or 2005, like I maybe had like just like a cheap little crappy digital camera, but uh, I don't think I ever really grasped it. Like I have now, like just getting into like photography and stuff. So I actually started photography. Uh, I bought my first camera. It was like a digital point and shoot mm-hmm. in September of 2018 was it yeah 2018 well, no wait 2019 i'm sorry <laughs> lose, yeah the older i get the, the the quicker i lose track of time yeah. yeah no okay so that's what it was all right yeah so I, I had the spark and everything and i did the gig for the lady for her bar and lutes and then I went out and I bought the digital camera like a couple of days later, and that was in September of 2019. Because then, shortly thereafter, I went to Colorado and I wound up selling that camera at the beginning of 2020. That's what it was. Okay. So, see that, and I
0: just learned something new, and I don't think this, this is something I've never asked you before. I, I don't believe, but. I You had me fooled because you know, I mean, you know, a tremendous amount about how it compared to me anyway, at least in in my mind, this is how I see it. You know, a tremendous amount about how cameras work, the frame rates, how that plays into the actual quality of the footage, how to edit that footage in in a way that makes sense for your project. So you've, you've got sort of that part down more so than I do. And you had me fooled to the point that I thought you started as a photographer and filmmaker and then added a drone to your arsenal but you got into it. You got into photography and filmmaking the same way that I did for the most part. I I also started at the
1: drone. Yeah. So it's, it was really funny because like being a, a younger like artist, photographer, filmmaker, video maker, whatever you want to consider that. Like I actually, I actually watched as many like tutorial videos on youtube so like peter mckinnon billy kyle maddie Hipoya, um basically just anybody that was into drones and like had more like uh jevin Dorby, i think is his name was like there's just there was a lot of people that had like tutorials and stuff on how to get like better footage and what frame rates and stuff were like potato jet um everyday dad another one so like i Everybody, every single one of those people that had, like, some sort of a tutorial video on, like, how to get better footage and how to, like, edit them and stuff like that. Like, I can constantly watch and a lot of videos, too, like, I would watch, like, those montage videos, of, like, Casey Neistat and Peter McKinnon, and, every like, all of them would put out. And, like, I would just kind of, like, I would watch them, and I would kind of, like, mimic, like, how they were splicing it together, like most of everybody used like jump cuts. So I was like, all right, well maybe that's what everybody's doing. So just, I just made like jump cut videos and I wouldn't even say like, I wasn't even really good at like color grading. Um, I'm getting better. I'm still not that great. So there's always room for improvement, but I honestly like for the least amount of knowledge that I had, I just watched as many like tutorial videos and stuff about like drones and cameras and, I just, I gained as much knowledge as I could to kind of like put myself ahead in that point. So yeah, everything other than that, I just kind of kept learning.
0: Yeah. And that's that you said it, the, there's always room for improvement. And growing up, I played sports my entire life and that's something that every coach that I ever had always told you, you know, there's always room for improvement. You might think you're the best, but you know, there's always somebody that's a little bit better. And uh, they just always preach that there's always room for improvement, but it hasn't really set in with me the way that it has with filmmaking photography, because it's it's like you do something and you take this next step on your own and you think, man, that that photo looks much better now that I've done this. And whether you were just playing around or you learned it from somebody else, it's just that one little aha moment that you get every once in a while that sort of keeps fueling that fire to keep getting better. I've had the, the fortune of meeting people like you who I look at your stuff on your Instagram feed and, you know, that I get inspiration off of the stuff that you shoot. Uh, you know, I look at uh, guys like John Kincaid, who's a photographer in Bora Bora, who doesn't necessarily specialize in drones, but he does a lot of cool stuff with drones. And he does a lot of cool photography naturally in Bora Bora. And he's, he's taught me how to do different types of things in Lightroom that I, I didn't know how to do previously. So, it, there's, there's this really great community and you just have to tap into it. And, and another guy, I don't know if you mentioned in, uh, the people that you watched on YouTube, but the people at drone film guide do a fantastic job on YouTube, going through how to's on, you know, what settings to put your drone at, how to color grade footage appropriately, it, all these different things. And just taking the time to sit down and watch that stuff, you learn a lot. And there's just that, like I said, that constant aha moment that you get from working in the industry you work in.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And even even with myself, it's like I continue I continue to try and push myself, like whether it's like drone photos or drone videos or just like camera, camera photos and videos and like just making like montage little things. And it's like you get to that point where where it's like, what if I what if i use this gradient filter and then you're like oh man that's how like i've seen photos that look just kind of like this and you're like that's how they're doing it or they're using like the adjustment brush in Lightroom, and then they're you know like they're using the adjustment brush on like a certain portion and bumping up the highlights or you know pulling down the shadows or whatever to kind of give it like that more like contrasty dramatic feel mm-hmm. and eventually like I watched I've watched some tutorials on things it was more like for like photoshop and stuff like how to like remove things and and do other stuff like that but um, I personally like I I didn't watch as many like tutorial like how to edit photos videos cuz like I always I always felt like it's the same thing when you're painting Like if you paint the same painting that somebody else paints, like basically you're just kind of copying them. And I'm not saying you shouldn't take inspiration from seeing somebody else's art, but when you really sit down and you kind of figure something out for yourself and then you can apply that to your images a little bit differently than somebody else might. And so like I always kind of edited my photos that way. And I always took criticism because, like, if somebody is like, you know, this, I, and it's gonna sound super weird, I used to go on Instagram and I would actually, I would screenshot people's photos or like save them somehow, and then I would edit them and I would send them a message and like, hey, you know um, I really like this photo. I think it's pretty dope. I'm a big, big, uh, beginning photographer and I would like, you know, I edited this photo. Can you tell me what you think? Do you like this a little bit better than the one that you have on your profile? I'm like, mm. I would get a lot of positives, but then there was also the people that were like, you know, that's cool and all, but I don't really like how you edited this type of thing. And like, they would explain it to you or you would just ask them like, well, what do you mean? Like, what didn't you like about it? And I know as weird as that kind of sounds, cause like you're not expecting somebody that you don't know to be like, hey, I edited your photo for you. But it kind of gave you, or at least it gave me a sense of like, more of like how I wanted to kind of like tailor the way that I edit photos. So I don't know, maybe as weird as that sounds, like I practice photography pretty much almost every day and I'll edit photos just to edit a photo like I don't really I don't always like go back and re-edit photos but sometimes after a while I'll go back and I'll re-edit a photo like when I went to Colorado I re-edited some and the the results I got from the first time I edited to the second time that I edited were completely different. Mm.
0: Yeah. And that's, that, I don't, what you said, I don't think is weird at all. Actually. Uh, I've had people do that to my photos and I, it's, I I'm very appreciative because sometimes I do get, I, I do react in a way, sort of like you, you said, I'll go, yeah, you know, that's an interesting edit. I don't know if I necessarily like what you did here, but this is kind of cool, you know, and I, I give them maybe like a mixed feedback, but there sometimes the people send me a photo that they edited that I took and it's super enlightening. Cause it's like, man, I could have done, this, this, and this differently, and I would have gotten a completely different feel off of this photo. So I, I don't think that's weird at all. Uh and to your point, going back and editing older photos too, from a content standpoint, as a social media person, that you know, you, you've got this, this persona that you have on your Instagram or your YouTube. There is a guy that I met at the FAA protest back in uh was it February or March of 2020 in Washington, DC? His name's Jacob Howard. He owns Filmco Studios in Utah. And we talked a little bit, got to know each other. And he, he, I said, hey, I ju- I'm just starting my drone business, my, my journey on social media as sort of a, a drone persona. Can you give me any tips for you know, how to be successful? And one of the things that he said is exactly what you're saying. Take as many photos as you can wherever you go. And remember to always go back and re-edit photos you've already either posted or edited. He said, because A, if you haven't posted them already and you edit them with new techniques that you've learned, you'll get a better photo out of it in the long run. And you'll have content you can lean on when you don't have any content, new content to post. And B, you just improve as an editor when you're just constantly doing
1: it all the time. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't, they don't like maybe take into consideration when they're newer. Like I didn't, I mean, when I first started, I was just taking photos and posting them on social media. Like I would edit them a little bit, add like a bunch of contrast, pump up the, you know, like pull up the shadows, drop the blacks, you know, pump up the whites and like mess with the tone curve a little bit. And then like now what took me a minute or two to edit a photo takes me like four or five minutes to edit the photo. And so, like, I think you continually progress from, like, a, a short, fast edit to kind of, like, a more complex. And then, like, over time, you know, depending on how advanced your skills get, like, I've seen people that take 20 or so minutes to edit, like, just one photo. But that also maybe... is also maybe something, like, if you're getting like a paid gig, I guess, maybe. Um, but I, there's always, always room for improvements. And I mean, you shouldn't ever limit yourself to just doing like a quick edit to get something like content-wise. I mean, not to say that I don't do that, but I try to sit down and actually like edit on my computer more often now because I used to, especially with like the Spark, like I would always go out and I would do um, like sunset photos and then I would just download them off the spark, edit them real quick and throw them up on social. And like, I mean, that works for the longest time, but then you can only take so many pictures of the same sunset at the same place. And that's also kind of like Brooksville in a hole. Like there's not really a whole lot of places to go to fly drones, which kind of sucks. But I mean, there's the beach, there's like the downtown area. And so like, I just kind of got, I wouldn't say, like, tired of the drone sunsets, but I just, I wanted it to be, like, more from different places, and, like, there's just not, like, a whole lot of them here, so, like, I would have to drive a certain, you know, like, down to Dunedin or down to, like, Clearwater or Tampa to go, like, fly different places. Uh, The more I drive north, I would have to go to, like, Ocala or Gainesville, and like sometimes you just don't have the time to go drive an hour to get the sunset somewhere else. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And that's, that's, I think that's the challenge in our industry is you with
0: a drone. I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever flown inside for any projects like paid or not, but I've done it maybe a handful of times. And first off, nobody really wants to see, uh, it's not that nobody wants to see it, but anything you can capture inside with a drone, you can capture with a handheld camera. So it's, it's sort of overkill to fly unless you're, using it for a very specific shot that you can't get with a handheld camera, but those are few and far between. But that, that seems to be the biggest challenge is we have to deal with the time of day. I mean, the, the bottom line is if it's dark, you know, you can fly a drone all you want, you might get some cool shots of the city with the lights all lit up, but sort of to your point about seeing the same thing over and over again, you know, you can only take so many nighttime shots or after the sun goes down. So you you sort of are dealing, you're working on a very limited time basis to get interesting shots. And when you have to drive an hour to go see something or do something different, you know, there's an hour of your day already eaten. So now you, you've got even less time to, to shoot something. And then it goes into planning out how you're going to fly around this object and, you know, understanding where you're allowed to take off launch land, operate from all those things come into play. And I think that's something that people that don't fly drones or don't fly drones regularly don't understand is when you're, when you're doing it for content purposes, there are several layers to it. And, you know, if you're stuck in a place that doesn't have a lot of interesting things to shoot, it it makes it very difficult to create content
1: because now you're working against the clock as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, I mean, I've basically, especially here in Brooksville, like, I've flown downtown, I've flown at the beach, like, our little two portions of the beach. And, like, I'll go back there sometimes just because, you know, I post something new. Um, But, I mean, I don't know. It's, like, really, it's it's so hard to, like, take into consideration, like, how much effort goes into just taking one photo (laughs) for social media. Mm -hmm. And especially like, if you don't, that's why I said like PA and like even people who live in Colorado and, you know, some of those States that are just up North that have like a a beautiful mountainous terrain. Like you can take as many photos of those. I don't think those would ever get tiring. Uh, Our beach here is like a very small little like Island ish thing. I don't know if that makes sense, but, like, if you go down to Clearwater, Clearwater is, like, a very long, straight, like, edge of a beach for, like, five or six miles. Here, it's just, like, this little, like, roundabout type of thing that, like, you go sit at the sand in, and then it's, like, mm. you can take a couple different, you know, angles of that and do it at different times of the day and stuff, but, like, sunsets sell, man. <laughs> they, <laughs> it's they, like, they do. it. It's it's interesting to see
0: the the types of accounts that jump on my Instagram posts too and it it really comes down to a couple different things. One, where you take the photo at because you're going to attract when you use those hashtags or you use that locality to tag your photo, you're going to get those local people that are interested in seeing that. But B, the, the other thing that comes into play is exactly sort of knowing what catches eyes and when it comes to drone photos, sunsets certainly are one of the top two or three types of photos you should certainly be thinking about taking because they, they do get traction um, and they, they definitely sell, I guess, for lack of a better term.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, drone for, for as very little time as drones have been popular. I mean, I honestly, like I knew some other people, like my brother had a friend and he had like a, I think he had a phantom three advanced or something like that. If I remember correctly, And like, I never really thought anything of it. I'm like, Oh, that's cool. And then I don't know what, I don't know where it came from. I was like, man, I kind of want to get a drone. And then like, I kept looking into them and like for Christmas, I like I told my parents, like, did you want anything? And I was like, yeah, uh, I think, I think a drone would be pretty cool. And so like I put it on my Amazon wish list. Mm-hmm. and that's where like the whole once i got that little holly stone like as much of like as a piece of crap it is as it is now like when i look back at it it's like you really didn't understand what the feeling was and then so like drones have only be- have only become more popularized i would say in the past two or three years because mm-hmm. you, you had more and more accounts posting drone videos and drone photos And so those would get recycled and people would retweet them and they would repost them on their Instagram. And so then you had like just drone accounts where all they did was they found like really nice looking drone photos. And so they would repost them and tag the owners and like eventually they became more popular. And so more and more people went out and they had to buy a drone and more and more people went out and bought a drone. And then so like you started to gain this, this like unique well of people that just kind of like pooled together and more and more people got interested in drones and stuff like that. And so then it became like this kind of like secret, like secret kingdom of like, everybody's now going to drones and like more people are using them professionally and more people are just using them for like family vacations and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so eventually what happened is it just blew up and now it's like, I don't want to say almost everybody's content looks the same, um, but there are very certain degrees at which I would say that content differs from person to person on, like, social media now, Mm -hmm. uh, especially from drones. Like, so depending on where you live, I think that you have a better stance because, like, I can almost guarantee you there's probably another 30 to 50 people that take very similar photos to yours after seeing what you do and mm. you know, like, I feel the same way as like, I copied somebody else because I saw pictures that somebody else took. And so like, I did the same thing kind
0: of. Mm. The other thing that I wanted to ask you, I just recently did that Mavic Mini 2 giveaway or the Mini 2 giveaway. And my accounts just sort of caught fire a little bit. And I, I think I doubled my Instagram followers, but the one thing that sort of threw me for a loop and I didn't think I'd ever have this to encounter or have this to deal with is I've got a lot of people that get on my my social media and they don't just take influence from my social media, but sort of to your point, they take the pictures from my account and post it to their account because they're like a drone picture account. And yeah. they they tag me and they give me credit and everything like that. But I guess I sort of want to get your feeling on how you feel about those accounts. Because there's part of me that's, that's as a drone pilot and a creator that's flattered by that, that somebody thinks my, my work is good enough to post. But then there's the other part of me that's like, you're benefiting directly from the work that
1: I put into this.
0: you know. I, so I don't really know how to feel about it, but what what's your take on that?
1: Uh, so it's happened to me a couple of times. Uh, I don't know if it's happened anywhere else that hasn't posted me uh, or tagged me in my post. Um, but there's another like local there's another local account and they like they kind of like mismatch pieces of like photography from different people and they'll tag you in it. Um, they've done it to me a couple of times where like they'll take a photo of mine and uh, they won't like ask but they'll, they'll still tag me in it and I'm, I would be more gracious like I'd be o- more okay with it if they like send me a message or something first like hey do you mind if we use your photo like yeah that's cool mm-hmm. just you know don't just you know take it and repost it at least ask i mean 90 percent of the time i can almost guarantee you people are going to tell you yes anyways but i i mean just i've always i the way that i grew up and the way that i was raised was like you know ask first and then like if they tell you no then it's a no and if they say yes then that's a yes yeah and so. that's
0: I just want to be clear too. If there are any of those Instagram accounts out there that do share my stuff. First off, I, I, there are a set of accounts, especially local here to Lancaster that repost much like you say, they repost uh, it's sort of a hodgepodge. I don't want to say hodgepodge. That's not the right word, but they mix and match photographers and they post the content that we post and they, they share it and tag us and give us the credit. You know, those accounts I'm fine with, especially if I've given you the green light, you know, to several of those accounts, I've said, you have permission to share my stuff whenever you want. Like as long as I'm tagged, I don't just, you don't even have to ask anymore. Yeah. Uh, it's it's the accounts that aren't local to where I'm shooting at. And they don't message me and say, Hey, is this okay? Because like you said, nine chances out of 10, I'm going to say, yeah, that's totally fine. As long as I get tagged, I don't care what you do with it, you know uh, within reason anyway. Uh, right. but yeah. That's, that's my big thing too. And I, it's, it's sort of just an etiquette thing. And I've, I've noticed that people sometimes take their liberties and that's where I get those mixed feelings where I'm just like, I'm flattered, but also, you know, you could have at least messaged me and said, Hey, I want to do this. Can I do this? You know?
1: Yeah. It, it makes me a little perturbed. Uh, like I said, it's happened to me a couple of times where like I would, I was tagged in the photo. I just didn't know that they were using it on their account type of thing. And I was like, like a little like heads up before like hey you know we we really like this photo do you mind if we use it like i would have even like emailed them the photo at like a higher resolution at that point yeah but it just seems like all they did was they found it either like on my social media account and either screenshotted it and reposted it or i don't know how they reposted it but basically i was just tagged in the photo and i was like there's nothing else other than just like hey thanks for letting us use your photo and i was like cool you didn't ask but all right whatever (laughs) as long as i'm tagged in it that's like cool i guess but yeah like i don't know because like i don't know if instagram has to have a way that like they can save it from being screenshotted I, i don't know if that's even possible but well, there's like, there's a lot of third-party apps like uh,
0: Regram and stuff like that that allow you to take a post and almost like pseudo-share it because Instagram is one of the more restrictive apps in terms of sharing content. I mean, unless you're posting it to your story, somebody else's post, it, yeah. it's very difficult to do other than A, screenshotting it and uploading it to your own profile or B, using a third-party app. But Instagram's even starting to crack down on that. So the more and more time goes by, the more I'm seeing people not using Regram and apps like Regram. And like you said, they're just taking screen grabs or whatever right off my profile and posting it to their own. And so it is an interesting how that's... I know Instagram's trying to protect the integrity of their platform by preventing third-party apps from getting too heavily involved in, in their content and the content posted to their platform. But it also opens this door of now people are just blatantly taking screen grabs and posting them with or without permission. And it it does two things. One, you can do it without permission and sort of end up stealing the work of somebody that put it out there. And then two, it also just sort of destroys the integrity of that work because, you know, just like all other people that are in visual media know, if you do a screenshot, you're going to lose so much quality on the image itself. You would rather that person reach out and say, Hey, can I use this? Then you go, here is the actual file. So that you get the best pro- possible quality out of this post as you can.
1: Yeah. And that's like, like, that's why I said, like, even if they like just reach out to you first and they're like, Hey, do you mind if I use this on my account? Uh, you know, like I do a repost account. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. And you know what the messed up thing too is, is like a lot of those counts have like, they have like, 10, 20 thirty thousand you know followers or whatever and it's like the people that they're reposting those images of have like two or three thousand
0: <laughs> yeah that's exactly that's exactly it and that's the that's the thing that, that, that becomes somewhat frustrating through the whole process but I, I guess there's there's no real stopping it. it it's 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 a problem I don't think will ever go away but that right. sort of segs me into the next thought that I, I wanted to talk to you about is And I, I have this conversation with just about everybody, but uh, one guy in particular is Forevermore Media on Instagram. He and I talk back and forth about this. And he's going to be on the podcast at a later date. Uh, but it worked for exposure. I know that as a creator, you've, you've run into this because ev- just about everybody has. You know, can you give us some, uh, some insight as to how you handle that? Because I know a lot of people that are just getting skin in the game and starting to, to learn about how to sell this this work that they're creating. Uh, that's one big problem, one big hurdle they have is I don't want to burn any bridges with these people that are coming and asking me to, to shoot this media for exposure. But at the same time, like, this is still my time and my skill set that is
1: sort of being taken advantage of for what is essentially free. Uh, do you, how do you handle that as a creator? Um, well, and so I think that it kind of plays into a few different things. First and Drake. foremost, <laughs> er, first and foremost, it, it really not all, all depends on, I would say you as the creator, because you're the one that's using your time, your energy, your efforts. So uh, actually earlier today, um, a, a guy I used to work with back when I worked at Applebee's, he he does uh, music. So he's trying to like get into the music. He's trying to become like a, a rap artist and stuff. And so like, I kind of hadn't talked to him in a little bit. And I actually saw him outside of my w- other job that I was working recently. And he was like, oh, hey man, how you been? Blah, blah, blah. And so like, uh, eventually we like got to talking and I was like, oh yeah, hit me up on Instagram or whatever. And so like, I did photos for him earlier today because he wanted some stuff to post on his social media. And he was like, you know, can you, can you get me? And he was actually going to pay too, but I just told him like, you know, I'll do a pro bono. That's cool, man. Um, so I would say in all honesty, it's, it's up to the creator. Um, if you want to do it for the exposure or just for like a beneficial factor, like I, I haven't done a lot of, portrait work or like portraiture photography. So like, I was just like, you know what? I'm like, he's a cool guy. He's trying to like get himself started. And so like, I'll do it for him for free. I don't care. I mean, it took me 20 or 30 minutes to take, you know, 25, 30 photos or whatever, and let him decide whatever ones he wants to keep. Um, I decided to just pro bono it and just like, you know, here, just tag me or whatever. Um, so I would say that number one, it really all depends on you, the creator. Like, I, right, do you need the money? Um I mean if you absolutely need the money and you don't want to do it for free maybe just try and work with them on their budget like you know here's what I would have charged you what or you know even just ask them first like what is your budget and then throw the number out like here's what I would have charged you uh I can work with your budget on this or if their budget is too low like well we can do something a little different maybe we can tailor it to you know maybe it's uh photos and video like Let's say you're doing work for a realtor. The realtor reaches out to you and you're like, all right, well, what's your budget for this house? And they say, well, you know, I don't have a lot of money to spend on a photo and videos, but I have 120 bucks, let's say. So you say, okay, well, normally, you know, for a photo and video, I would have charged you 300 and you have 120. So here's what I can do is I can give you like 15 or 20 photos. You know, maybe you do brackets or maybe you just do single shot exposures. I mean, that's completely up to you. However much time you want to invest into that. Um, maybe make them like a 30 or 45 second video, just kind of like a montage clip of like the house. So you get like, you know, a top down shot of the house. Maybe you like, you're coming down with the drone doing a top down shot and then you do like a parallax, maybe do like a flyover and. So you just make like a small little montage video and then you throw like some cheesy music on there for them. I mean, it's 120 bucks. Yeah. You know, but it's 120 bucks into your pocket type of thing.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, that's the the best advice you could probably give is every, there's no one size fits all. I think that if you're too stubborn about, charging money and you know sticking to your rate on every job that comes your way you start to become known as the guy that's a little bit too difficult to work with because people do really appreciate flexibility especially when it comes to their budget so if you're able to help work with them on that you you tend to rub them the right way and then they tend to either refer you or come back to you when they need somebody again so I, i i agree that sometimes it's it's one of those deals where you just have to look at the situation the big thing that i try to evaluate is first off is this a business or is this a non-profit or a nonprofit? A not-for-profit because that's a huge dictator as to whether or not I'm going to stick to my figures, the ones that I, you know, I, I swear by, or if I'm going to play ball, for lack of a better term, and help them with their budget. The other side of it is too, sort of like what you were saying if it's a startup, if it's uh, somebody that's just getting their feet wet in their industry and they need to put something out there that helps them to get the word out about what they're doing or what they're trying to sell. That's the other thing I try to help those guys out because once they get started and they start to get the money rolling in, then you can come back to that conversation and go, Hey man, you know, I, I helped you out with that first job, but I've got to get up to, you know, my rate. I got to, I've got to make money off of this too. So when they have the capital to invest with you, more often than not, those guys will remember that you did them a favor and they'll they'll go back to you. Um, the the one thing that drives me crazy with the the exposure thing is so, uh, somebody that's blatantly a business that's well-established and has the capital to to invest in their marketing and their multimedia side of their marketing as well. And they're trying to, again, you know, get you to do something with your time for nothing at all. Recently I had an online blog and it I got on just to see, because I thought if this is a small time blog and they're just trying to get original content, avoid copyright from other people, other places, lifting stuff off the internet, I can help them out. But when I got on their website, it was very apparent that this is a blog that's been around for you know at least 10 years. I think I remember the copyright being somewhere in the 11 or 12 ball, ballpark. So at least 10 years they've been around. They had just hundreds and hundreds of content articles and you could tell that they were selling ad space on their website. So there were a few factors there that made me determine that you, what they wanted to do was post a photo that I took of Lancaster city and give me credit in their blog. Just put my name underneath it and a link to my Instagram profile. And I, I sort of was conflicted because I thought, well, I, this looks like a blog that's well-trafficked. I could certainly use the exposure. But then the other side of me was, these people definitely have the money to pay me for this shot. Not that I, if it's a pre-shot thing that I took for inst- like Instagram, I don't charge a lot for those anyway, because they're just going to sit around and not make me a money anyway. If I don't sell them, they're not making money anyway. So, yeah. um, I, I, it was one of those deals where I had to reach out and I asked a few people and the unanimous answer was, nobody cares. No, in those articles, almost nobody clicks on who took the photo. They're, they're there to read the article that is written and your picture is just an accessory to that. And you, if, you're, if you get one out of every 10,000 people that come through, even click on your profile, let alone like it or like any of your posts, You're lucky, you know, so that's, that's sort of what made that deciding factor where I said to them, look, you know, I'm not going to reveal my rates. I would never ask anybody to do that on a, on a live format, but I'm not going to reveal my rates. But I said, look, you know, here's the deal. I have a pretty reasonable rate for pre-shot content. If you want something stock that I've already shot, it's going to be X amount of dollars. Yeah. I've not heard from them since. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it is, it's different strokes for different folks. I agree that it really depends upon where you're at as a creator. If you're just getting your feet wet, you know, I, that sound advice that you gave, uh, you know, just to sort of use your best judgment. It, is this something that you should be charging for or standing your ground on, or is this something that you should give them a little wiggle room? Yeah. And,
1: and like, I think, I think most people have a good sense of like, you can tell, like, even, even just in the tone of, like, the message or something that somebody might send you, like, if you're good at gauging people by, like, a tone, like, you can probably almost immediately tell, like, whether they're, like, are they really actually true? Like, do they really need help? Or, or is it just somebody that's just looking to not pay a, a local artist or an artist in general and just get something for free? It's, like, I, I feel that sometimes, like, you can really tell just, just by that person. Like, I've done... I've done quite a few free shoots and i've like even starting out like i was trying to get more into like doing real estate and like i offered i must have sent 20 to 30 messages to different realtors on top of like like extra you know two three weeks out from the same realtors like Hey, you know, like, I was just interested to see if you guys wanted to work together. I'm looking to build a, you know, a real estate profile. Are um, you guys have any listings that are coming up? You know, I'll shoot them for free. You guys don't have to pay anything like maybe you know, obviously I made the messages a little bit more professional than that. Like mm-hmm. I, my name Jordan type of thing, but um, like even, even some of those, like most of them didn't reach back out. Or most of them just kind of like brush it off, and there's a few of them that like I reached out to, and they're like, "Oh yeah, you know, I'd, I'd love for you to come down and shoot a house for me." Um, I actually had a couple of realtors do that. Like, I sent them a message a very long time ago, and during COVID and that whole situation, so like they didn't really have any houses on the market at the time. But eventually, they finally reached back out, and they're like, "Hey, you know, I have uh I have a, a listing that's coming up, and I'd like for you to come shoot it." Um but like I'm not saying that you like, you shouldn't do anything for free because there's always the opportunity that like you do a free item and then eventually you get a turnaround for that because either they're going to post it on their social media, another realtor or somebody else is going to see it. And then they're going to be like, Oh man, this guy does good work. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just something that you should gauge. Like if you really absolutely need the money and you can't, you know, you can't do something for free, then maybe try and work with them a little bit on budget. But I think yeah. if you're, if you're good at guessing or gauging people by like a tone, you probably should be able to just tell whether they're just looking to get something for free or not. And so, I mean, just always take it with a grain of salt. Um, like same thing. I, I recently had a friend, they had somebody else doing uh, like a magazine or something like that. They needed a pre-shot content. So like, I mean, I sold one of my drone photos of the beach for like fifty bucks. I mean, I already had it. I just had to send it to them.
0: Yeah, and, and I think that you—it's you, a—it's an interesting point too. That and there, there are ways around. Like, if you're going to charge, if you, if you absolutely want to charge somebody, going the extra mile to. Uh, I I call it value added uh, to the things that you're selling them. So I recently had a guy contact me. uh, He's doing a startup insurance company in Lancaster and he wanted to use a picture that I took And he asked if if I, if he gave me credit, if that would be okay. And I responded, I said, Hey, look, you know, I I don't typically do work for credit. Uh, At this point, I I am charging for everything that I shoot. If you want to use it, I said, however, you can buy a license off of me for this photo for a lifetime, use it however you want, wherever you want, as many times as you want for X amount of dollars. And, you know, he got, he came back and he said, Hey, I totally get it. You're a businessman. I'm a businessman. I, you know, I'm happy to do that. And when he showed that willingness to work with me, Uh, that's when I sort of opened up the floodgates and said, okay, I'm going to go the extra mile for this guy. It's only, you know, maybe 50, 60 bucks for me in my pocket, but you know, I'm going to make sure that he gets everything he wants as quickly as he needs it. And I I went the extra mile. I included an extra photo for him. I let him know that, you know, if he wants to reach out to me, I can be flexible with pricing in the future as well, if he needs me to be. And it's, it's just one of those deals where I feel like it was a win-win because in where I'm at sort of like what you're saying, it just depends on where you're at, but where I'm at, I'm, I don't need the money, but at this point I'm going to invest time in doing something. So I'm going to charge people for it, but I'm always going to make sure that if I chart, if I quote you, you know, a hundred dollars for X amount of photos or X amount of video or X minutes of video, I'm going to give you, you know, maybe 50% more, even maybe double what I promised you in terms of the content you get in return. It's just, I'm guaranteeing you, you're going to get this much. And I think that people appreciate that. And it also allows you to win because you are sticking to the pricing that you, you set up in the first place.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And like, yeah. I mean, always always go above and beyond. And I've done it plenty of times, um, like even going back and like re-editing videos for people to just like have fresher content. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, especially with real estate in general, I mean, with real estate, I, I shoot, well over the amount of photos that i charge them for and i'm like here's all of these photos they're all edited choose whatever ones that you want and it's like you know for 30 photos or whatever it is i charge people uh, like 130 florida rates i mean florida is a little different so yeah. if you're people up in pennsylvania probably can charge a lot more for that but um You'd be surprised, actually. Your your
0: your numbers aren't too far off from like where our market is here in Lancaster. But if you go out to Philly, like obviously the numbers are a lot higher there. There's also a lot more to deal with as a drone pilot out in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, where it, you're not just dealing with you know increased difficulty with the airspace and how to navigate that. But I know the city of Pittsburgh, for instance, they have you're not allowed to launch, land, and operate a drone in most of the city. Uh, you know if you're if you're caught doing that, you could face fines. It, most of the t- stories I've heard, they're asked to leave, you know, land your drone and leave. But, you know, the, the city of Pittsburgh takes it very seriously and you're not even really allowed to operate your drone within the limits of the city, it, from what I understand anyway. Um, Interesting. Yeah, it is. And, and that's something that I started to learn. And, you're, and we'll talk about the legislation that um, Mike Lee tried to propose. I just did a video on that and I, we've talked about this. But. that's something I'm starting to learn is the different loopholes and nuances that come with being a drone pilot. The FAA is the only authority, the only agency that has authority over the airspace over the United States. So when you're flying, like you're playing by their rules, but when it comes to launching and landing and operating your drone from the ground, the townships, the cities, the boroughs that you're flying and the, the, the people that manage the land that you're flying from they can tell you whether or not you're allowed to launch land or operate a drone from that land. They ha- that's well within their rights. They just can't tell you how to fly your drone within the airspace. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. And it's, it's an argument I get into daily with people. I don't want to say daily, but at least once a week, I'm getting into an argument with people about the rules and how, and how that goes. And there's just this common misconception that the FAA controls all aspects of a drone flight when that's, that's not true. Everything from the ground can be dictated by other agencies that have jurisdiction wherever you're flying from.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that actually b- reminds me when I went to Colorado for the first time. So the first time I went to Colorado, I brought the spark out there with me and, uh, I mean, me and my brother, we went to the Buffalo bill museum and I think it's golden. If I remember correctly, uh, it's pretty close to the Coors Beer brewery. And, uh, so we were at the Buffalo Bill Museum on top of this mountain-ish. I forget which one it was exactly, but so we were like in the parking lot area of the museum, and there was actually no, there was no signs or anything that said no drones, blah blah blah. And like I looked at maps, like I looked at Kitty Hawk and I looked at uh, air maps and like a couple of the other ones that I had at the time and, like, there's no TFRs, no NFZs, um, and so, like, I was, like, all right, well, there's no signs, there's, there's no airspace restrictions here, so I was, like, all right, cool, I'll just launch it, and, like, I had the spark at the time, and so I still wasn't really competent flying in a very high altitude with winds, and I was, kind of, like, sketched out, so, like, I was just, kind of, like, hovering it, and, like, flying forward and backwards with it, and, eventually the park ranger came over and he's like uh i gotta talk to you and so like he took my information and stuff down and he was like yeah you're not really supposed to fly here blah 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 and i got a citation um i didn't have to pay anything it was just more of like a slap on the hand like hey you know they took down my information and stuff and basically just said flying on like park property type of thing Mm -hmm. but I want to say, I think that the Buffalo Bill Museum was like state owned and it wasn't like a a, uh, national park type Mm -hmm. of thing. And so like I was like, all right, well, that's cool. Like I didn't get fined or anything for that, but I'm like kind of sketched out now a little bit. And uh, I wound up talking to somebody at the Capitol in Denver. Like I found some somebody's number and i called them and i like he was actually a drone pilot so he was like all right yeah he was like you know i feel it i feel your pain i know you it's colorado you're here on vacation you want to fly and like he's like i get it and he he was like the best advice i can give you is launch from the road because that's owned by the county and not by anybody else or something like that and i was like uh, all right that makes sense and so like, I just went with that. So, and like,
0: it, it's like, you don't want to be sneaky. And that's, that's the right. thing that I struggle with too, is you don't want to be that guy that's like skirting the rules. But when it comes down to it, it you know, it, when you have a firm understanding of, you know, who's in charge of what, where you're allowed to fly, where you're allowed to launch and land from, that's when you can start to get creative and get those shots that other people might not know how to get. A great example, because Pennsylvania is much like Colorado. It sounds like with the state park system, in Pennsylvania, you are not allowed to launch, land, or operate a drone from within the boundaries of a state park. So I grew up in an area, and I visit my, my hometown quite often, uh, where we have a, a state park. It's Little Pine State Park. And there's a hiking trail that takes you up to the top of this mountain. And the trail actually leaves the boundaries of the state park. So recently, I was able to take that hike with my sister, her fiancé, my, my family members, and launch the drone from jut like literally maybe 100 yards outside of the boundaries of the state park and get the shots. And of course, I was contacted almost immediately by DCNR, who patrols the the state game lands and the state parks in Pennsylvania. I was contacted by people that, you know, sort of rabble rousers and wanted to cause trouble for me, telling me, hey, that's illegal. You're not allowed to do that. And, you know, all I had to do is provide flight logs and I didn't provide it for the people that were just randoms. But DCNR, when they were like, hey, you're not allowed to do that, I just provided them the flight logs and said, I didn't do that. You know, I, I was I'm allowed to fly over your state park as much as I want. But you can see quite clearly I launched land and operated the drone from this position outside of your state park the entire duration of my flight. So it's, it's one of those things where I, I used to get real sketched out too because it was one of those deals where it's like, I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to end up getting fined or go to jail or anything like that. But when you get that firmer understanding and you're able to back up what you're saying to these people, it makes it almost laughable sometimes because it's like, yeah, I, I followed the rules. I, I know that you're, you're, you're sketched out because I might have been
1: doing something I wasn't supposed to, but here's right. proof that I wasn't, you know? Yeah, and that's the thing that I think a lot of people fail to understand because I, I wouldn't say that I mean people that own a drone understand and like so they'll read into the regulations I would say I would say at least 80% of everybody that owns a drone has probably at least at some point in time either watched a video or read some sort of An article or information about like drone regulations or drone laws or something at that point there's like a very small percentage of people that just bought one and didn't care they just wanted to fly and so like that kind of that leaves that small gap to for the rest of us to kind of like have to deal with their consequences Mm -hmm. but i mean when you really look at it as a whole it's like so if the county owned the road inside of a national park like it's still a national park, you can't fly in it, but if the county owned it, I mean, technically you could take off from that because the county owns the road and not this, you know, the national park museum. But, like, if you're flying outside of the national park or a state park that it has, like, a no drone sign, uh, no drone sign, it's like, you're kind of, like, you're jumping the fence, but they don't own the airspace. And so like, that's why I think a lot of people don't understand. And it's like, I mean, yeah, technically you're not, you real realistically, I don't think that you should do that, especially if it's a national park because national parks have a lot of restrictions. Um, and like, they have a lot of protected species and stuff in there. it's like, I think I was reading, I was looking up something. Uh, Cause if I was able to fly in a national park, it would be the Redwoods national park. Mm-hmm. I just, I think that would be like, I mean, those are giant trees. Like how would that not be cool to like fly through them type of yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but from what I understand is you, so there's like a legal loophole. You can apply for a permit to film. And I think drones might be included in that, but you have to, you have to apply for the permit, like, months or years in advance and then you have to pay like a really big fee to get the permit mm-hmm. um but not everybody's gonna do that I, I think if i remember correctly the permit for the redwoods thing was like three thousand dollars or something crazy like that and it's like I, mean, I guess if you wanted to get like a cool shot or whatever but yeah, oh, no. and, and it's like
0: you sort of have to be a businessman at that point, and a business person rather, and do the the cost analysis. Like, if I invest this three thousand dollars and I get in, it, you know, will I be able to use this footage in a way that I'll get a return on my investment? Because if if not, then what's the point? Other than this is really cool footage, right? Uh, but that's that sort of brings me to another point too, and uh, you know, just to sort of segue the when I visited Utah, we flew in Goblin Valley State Park, and. Not all of the state parks in Utah abide by this, this logic or this process, but the majority of them do. You, you're not allowed to fly in those state parks without a permit. So the state parks in Utah charge anywhere between $20 and $25 for a day pass. And you and I have talked about this before, and this has come up on the table, especially with, you know, ironically enough, Mike Lee, the senator from Utah. And Taxes and fees for drone flights, largely, I don't agree with it. When it comes to flying in your city or your neighborhood or flying somewhere that doesn't have any sort of relevance or significance, it, you shouldn't have to pay. I mean, it really should just be as simple as, as long as the... the county doesn't have any rules about launching and landing drones you should be able to just throw it up and go without any kind of payment but i do like the idea if we're talking about state parks where you're not allowed to necessarily fly within the boundaries of a state park adopting the system that the utah county or the utah state parks have adopted where you can buy a day pass for like 20 25 bucks and have free reign in the park as long as you, you, know, you're, you check out and you're able to do it responsibly. So that, that's something that I, I know you and I sort of share the opinion of. It, I, I certainly wanna see something like that and it, in a way that it doesn't make it more restrictive but it makes it less restrictive. I think most drone pilots to get footage that they want especially of these really well-preserved and untouched areas like state parks for the most part would pay the 20 to $25 to be able to do that without any, any kind of a hassle.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I actually, I was about to say that, like, I think that's a really good idea. Um, I didn't know that cause when I went to Utah, the last time I was, I went to Colorado, we went to like Arches national park and stuff. I brought my drone and stuff with me, but it was super cold. I didn't want to fly it and kind of like cause some sort of a malfunction or whatever. But, uh, I think that maybe not even like national parks, but like just smaller state parks, and you know maybe maybe certain portions i don't know yeah if they had a designated area where you could pay a fee like hey we understand that you drone kids or drone people you want to fly your drone and get some cool photos and footage that's fine you're allowed to go you know 600 or a thousand feet out with your drone that's it until you get to the point like like a no-fly zone type of thing, but there's just like a giant square, giant circle around you type of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I don't know if you've ever tried to fly into a no-fly zone, but basically you hit a digital wall and then the drone won't go any further past that unless you plan on recuperating the drone from that area. Um, Oddly enough, that happened to me one time, right around the a little golf course that's over off 41. So it basically just hit a wall and it wouldn't let me go. But I think that that is a really good idea. You know, maybe 35, 40, 50 bucks or whatever. Like I would even pay like 50 bucks to even just like, even if it were in like a giant like circle, like it couldn't go past like a certain point, like like an interior like fly zone Mm -hmm. of like a thousand foot circle or something. Like, I mean, even just, It's kind of limited, but I think it's a cool idea that, like, you're just able to fly in a place that you're not technically allowed to fly type of thing. I think that would benefit states because there are so many tourists, so many tourists that would pay, would pay, like, even local people would pay to do that. And it's like, that's kind of like when Colorado first legalized marijuana, like, they, they got so much money. Mm -hmm. from legalizing marijuana and just allowing people to do it freely that like they had to basically give money away type of thing (laughs) Um, and I think I think some states could probably benefit from stuff like that because I mean there are some states that have like multiple national parks and multiple state parks that they don't allow drones inside of but if you gave people the option to pay and only go to a certain point Like, I mean, 35, 40 bucks, 50 bucks or whatever. Like, I don't know. I I think if I were on vacation in Colorado again, and I wanted to just kind of like snap some cool photos of the Rocky Mountain National Park from inside the park. I think that would be pretty dope. I mean, I've gotten a few from outside in Estes Park, where there's like that little town before you get into the Rocky Mountain National Park, but it's just not—it's not as cool from like inside of it. But
0: yeah, and that's—I sort of have a similar experience in Utah. Uh, we were at Zion National Park, and there's a town. For the life of me, I can't remember. I think it's Springvale is what it's called, but it's just outside of the boundary of the national park. So I was able to launch the drone from outside of that boundary and. I couldn't get any like pictures of some uh, really definitive landmarks within the national park it was just they were just it's too big and too far away but i was able to at least get shots leading into the park and you know i guess with state parks more so than national parks because national parks have the protection of that no-fly zone from the faa state parks should sort of just get on board with it and take the money they can get from charging for day permits with drones because Otherwise I'm just going to go right outside your boundaries and I'm going to fly the drone into your park. And sure. you know, it, it, there's the visual line of sight argument, but the fact of the matter is if somebody really wants it bad enough, they can break the rule. It, you know, it, it's, it's, not a matter of proving that it's a matter for the state parks of proving whether or not they flew within the boundaries of their state parks. So if I can right. get the footage anyway, especially with these drones that have a range of, you know, five miles in, in optimal conditions, you might as well make money off of me, you know, because if I'm, if I'm able to fly closer, so I can still see my drone and I don't have that headache of visual line of sight, you know, I'm going to pay the money. I, you know, I I don't, not everybody's going to be like me. Most people, or some people at least will want to still fly from outside the boundary of the park for free. But for somebody like me, who largely follows the rules, I'll pay the money for a permit. If it
1: means I have a little less stress while I'm flying. Absolutely. Right. Exactly. And that's what, that kind of brings me back to that point I initially made. Like there is technically, I think, a legal loophole of like getting a filming permit because you have to remember that there are people that do like national parks documentaries and stuff. Mm-hmm. And not everybody can afford to rent a helicopter for the day and film, you know, from a helicopter. Cause I don't know how much it is to rent a helicopter, but I'm sure it's probably pretty expensive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm especially if you're doing a lot of filming and need to circle the park, you know, two, three, four, five
0: times or whatever. But I had a buddy that used to work in a helicopter rental in Las Vegas. And I, just for this conversation alone, I wish that I would have like racked his brain about how much it was to, to rent a helicopter. But but, yeah, I imagine that you're paying, I mean, upwards of at
1: least, you know, a few hundred dollars. Yeah. And it's like, there's, there's some places around that like, you can get helicopter rides, but I would still think that the, it's probably roughly about the same price as just, you know, paying 50 bucks for somebody to go fly a drone or whatever. But, um, it's the same thing. It's like, I mean, if you can get a permit to film inside of a national park where it's not permitted, then I think that you are probably are able to fly a drone. I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head. I remember looking up the information one day and I was like, Oh, that's interesting. You can get a permit to film. And I think drones were allowed but uh, I'd have to look at it again but I mean still I, I would pay I would pay 20 to 50 bucks I mean the WikiWatchie State Park in Brooksville out in Wikiwachi, Florida um, that's like 30-ish minutes from my house and they actually eventually put a very small no drone sign at like the very back of the parking lot where nobody could see it. Near the road, uh, I was going there one day to just because I just want to go and like snag a couple of like photos and stuff. And uh, somebody told me they're like, Yeah, no, you're not allowed to do that here, there's no drone zone. I'm like, What? And <laughs> the guy was like, yeah, he's like, You're not even allowed to take off from the other side of the road and fly it over to get pictures. And I'm like, I don't know about that. Yeah, no, that's I'm, not true. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, For starters, yeah, it's you're not, you're not supposed to fly over roads, especially with cars and stuff on it, but. Uh, you don't own the airspace over there, I'm pretty sure. You don't own the, the parking lot of the CBS that's across the street, so you can't really tell me that I can't do that. Exactly, and that, that, that brings me to the next thing, and this is sort of the elephant in the room
0: right now. I uh, don't know if you've seen the videos I've done recently about Senator Mike Lee, but he proposed uh, much what AirMap was in favor of on their, their Twitter rampage that they went on an unintentional Twitter rampage he proposed legislation that he was going to slip into the budget bill as an amendment that would do two things. Essentially, it would allow cities, states, localities to charge taxes and fees for the operation of drones. So if the FAA had no jurisdiction over that, if you wanted to launch a drone in Tampa, for instance, they would have the right to either tax you or charge you a fee to operate your drone, which is just ludicrous in in itself. But the other thing that he proposed that I think is a little bit of a reach. And I think that as long as he continues to try to die on that hill, we'll always come out on top because the FAA just doesn't, it won't give up control of airspace in any regard. He also proposed in that budget bill that localities would also have the right to police airspace from one to 200 feet above ground level. So that would mean, you know, even if you could find a place to launch or land your drone, if you were under 200 feet over top of the city of Tampa and they didn't like that, they could track you down using remote ID, which is coming in 2023. And, you, you know, do something about it, whether it's as nice as asking you to kindly to land your drone and leave. Or, you know, as far as finding you or even taking you to jail, depending upon how severe it is.
1: Yeah. I just, I don't see that. Like, and that's the thing is everything is always about money. And that's the thing that like, I don't think it would ever pass because you would need to really fight the FAA for that. And I mean, the FAA is basically the only entity that owns airspace as a government entity it's like i don't think that the faa is going to allow that to happen because once the air, the faa allows anybody to police any airspace it's like they basically don't own anything at that point and yeah
0: and i i think that's sort of like i said if he dies on the hill if anybody that is proposing this type of legislation wants to die on that hill I, that i agree wholeheartedly that the faa is not going to give that up because it opens up Uh, Just this this whole can of worms as far as conflicting authorities in certain airspaces. You know, the FAA still has control over that airspace of one to two hundred feet. But if you know the city of Tampa or the city of Lancaster says you're not allowed to fly at in one to two hundred feet above our city, you know who whose ruling takes precedent then? And how far do you have to take that in legal? It opens up a nightmare of. Legal things, litigation that I just don't think the FAA wants any part of. So I think they're always going to put their foot down and go, no, this is ours, you
1: know? Yeah, exactly. And that, so that would also bring up the point, too. So obviously, uh, Amazon, was it UPS, um, probably FedEx and the post office at some point will also apply for, what was it the FCF 135 license? Yep. Um, basically so all these all these large companies that are you know pushing to get their license to fly drones commercially so they can deliver packages and i'm sure hospitals eventually will jump on that same bandwagon which i i know that there have been a lot of tests in places like sweden some other countries that have been testing out long distance flights from like one hospital to another so like if you had to get you know an organ to another hospital you could probably fly it faster with a drone than you could you know load it into a van and drive it across this the you know 20 miles or whatever it is or 10 miles or whatever it is and so it, it it's going to all boil down to that it's like if if he did it in utah and then other states and other counties and other cities saw that they would all jump on that bandwagon. So then what's gonna to happen to people like Amazon, UPS, FedEx, uh, hospitals. And so like, when once remote ID is initiated and if I, if I remember correctly, what is it like? So once remote ID is basically up and running, we're only allowed to go up to 300 feet, I think it is, right? I think that was proposed. I don't know if that ever went through, but I know that
0: was a part of that uh, where they were going to take a chunk out to make that sort of like the, the the delivery drone zone where only drones flown by Amazon, UPS, these places that are making critical infrastructure movements with long distance drones
1: can operate. Yeah. And so like, all right. So even let's say that that doesn't happen. So the FAA would still have to give them some sort of a like a buffer space so that this way they could fly and not interfere with other people that are flying their drones um but then you're also going to have that instance where like all right so if they have to push the flight limit from 400 300 feet to 400 feet or 450 feet or something like that then you're going to be in airspace where planes and helicopters are flying so it all it's all going to boil down to like I don't think that that would ever really happen. I mean, if it takes hold in Utah, I I think the FAA would fight like hell to make sure that that doesn't happen in any other state because, I mean, let's be realistic. I mean, if if a hospital needs to get a, a heart transplant from, you know, Tampa General to Land Lakes, ER, you know, immediately, and they can't get somebody in a car to drive from TGH to Lando Lakes in 20 minutes, but you could fly a drone at that same distance in that same amount of time. Like, I mean, you're, you're freeing up traffic, you're not having to you know have somebody in a in an ambulance or a cop car, you know, haul ass through traffic and get stuck and stuff like that. So I I don't think that the FAA would ever allow that to happen. That's not to say that there's not going to be some crazy whack jobs that are trying to get a pass, but, and I, I think that all just boils down to like people's paranoia of drones. And cause I, I think more people are getting used to seeing drones. And so maybe they're just trying to make it a push to where like regular people aren't allowed to fly inside of like cities and stuff, mm-hmm. which I don't agree with because like, I mean, if you work for a business and you own a a company that does just basically, you know, multimedia or social media marketing for people, I mean, you got to use a drone and camera and stuff to get, you know, images and photos and stuff that you're looking to get.
0: Well, exactly. And that, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And I, I think that the idea of them extending the airspace for like these, these infrastructure drones is i don't think that'll happen i i think that even if it hasn't been passed through what's going to end up happening what you're saying they're going to take it off the top of our airspace which if that's the worst case scenario for us as as multimedia content creators and people that use their drones and their small business ventures I'm fine with that. It sort of goes back to our conversation earlier where once you get above 200 feet anyway, everything starts to look the same. So if they want to take from three to 400 feet or 301 to 400 away and give it to Amazon, but then nothing else really happens to the rest of us, I'm going to call that a win Uh, because otherwise I I think we're looking at a lot more uh, litigation and legislation that's going to be more restrictive of our end of the community.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's See, like once remote ID gets put in place, I, I kind of hope that that's the last of it or we don't really have to deal with anything else. And I don't really remember exactly if there was if there was a deciding factor of like what really took place for them to say, hey, listen, we need to have this remote ID. But I mean, you had a lot of people that just, they were just super paranoid And so they would always contact the FAA or the, you know, their local police station and like, Hey, this guy is over here flying a drone. I think he's spying on my kids and stuff like that. And I think that's really what caused the push. And so what, what do you think is going to happen when they're seeing Amazon and UPS drones flying over their house on a daily basis? And it's like, I mean, the FAA has to do something and they have to educate the public on on the initial, you know, use of drones on like a daily basis. If you, it's going to come to the point where you're going to start seeing delivery drones almost on, on like a daily basis at some point, especially in high like volume cities. Like, cause I want to say, I think that there's a, an Amazon warehouse near Tampa. So you're going to be seeing Amazon drones in Tampa at some point in time, probably within the next four or five years, especially once remote ID is initiated. Yeah, well, and it brings up an interesting point too,
0: that ever since I started, when I started flying drones, uh, the paranoia was probably at its peak with drones, especially people just randomly taking drones and launching them. So I remember when I first started flying my Phantom Three, there were several occasions where I was in the city of Williamsport, which is where they have the Little League World Series. It's like north central Pennsylvania. Uh, but I was in the city of Williamsport flying it, and I would get confronted by people that just from out of nowhere telling me, you know, quit, quit flying your drone near my kid, and it's like I. W- I didn't even know your kid was over there. You know, like, I have no interest in your kid. I'm, I'm trying to get this mountain, <laughs> you know, leave me alone. But it went from that to more recently, I still have negative interactions every once in a while. It, it's few and far between now, but more often than not, if I'm flying in Lancaster city, it's usually a pre, if somebody comes up to me and I, they usually ask me a question or they say, yeah, that's really cool, you know, or it's usually a positive interaction or at least neutral. Um, but it does bring up an interesting point. You still get those those nut jobs that say, I'm going to shoot your drone down, which is a federal offense, but they still threaten it because they think it'll get a reaction out of you or get you to do something they want you to do. But what happens the first time that an Amazon drone gets shot down? You, you know, I know that the the it's a federal offense. You're not allowed to interfere or sabotage an aircraft, especially while it's in flight. So that's that's a federal charge in itself. But how are they going to? pursue that. I know that there's a lot of information that those drones take in and they can sort of narrow it down. But when it comes right down to it, unless you have, you know, visual proof that this is somebody that shot the drone, it's really hard to narrow down who would shoot that down without some sort of a, a threat or some sort of an identification from that party that said, hey, if you don't do X, I'm going to shoot your drone down.
1: Yeah. Well, not only is shooting a drone down a federal offense, but I'm pretty sure that firing a weapon into the air is probably one of the dumbest things that anybody could do. Mm, Yeah. Um, Especially like if it's, I mean, a shotgun is a little different because, you know, everybody uses shotguns for like duck hunting and stuff like that. So. That's a little bit more on like the lenient side, but I mean still if you're doing something like that that's in like a city and you're trying to fuck you know, you're trying to fire on a drone that's flying, not only is that stupid and risky, I mean, if you kill somebody, then I mean you're at fall for murder at that point because you're paranoid. Mm-hmm. Um I I would think that probably for the most part, if a drone, like if they give Amazon and and all these other companies like a specific amount of airspace between three and 400 feet, let's say, and we're restricted to 299 and below, then I think that would cause the problem of people trying to speed shoot uh, a drone 300 feet in the air just to get a free package. Yeah. Um, Which, like I said, I mean, just firing a weapon into the air to be honest is stupid in general i mean if you're dumb enough to shoot a gun into the air and potentially murder somebody then you probably deserve to be in jail to begin with, <laughs> I um, agree with that. yeah so i i really think because like i see i see memes on facebook people post and they think it's funny and it's like that's you know, as funny as you think like ski shooting a drone out of the sky for an amazon package is funny and it's like you're not thinking of the consequences of that bullet or something goes astray and you hit somebody and you murder somebody then technically you're going to jail for murder at that point.
0: Well, There's there's also the physics of the drone too. Anybody that's ever shot skeet or duck hunts or any kind of waterfowl hunting or any kind of bird hunting for that matter. You understand that physics comes into play. The trajectory of that object you just shot out of the air, unless it's hovering, it's going to keep going forward for a length of time. So if that drone is going, you know, let's say 45, 50 miles an hour carrying that package and you shoot it and you disable it with your shot, that's going to carry for, you know, maybe a few hundred feet before it actually makes impact. So you're not just... shooting it and having it hit the ground in front of you, more than likely that's going to go flying somewhere and let alone the, the ammunition or the the rounds that you just expended into the air. You've now just got this, however large their drones are, I'm assuming they're going to be bigger to accommodate bigger packages, but you've got this maybe, you know, 10, 20 pound drone, that's just falling out of the air at a trajectory that you don't know where it's going to land or who it's going to land on. So, it, you know, yes. that, that opens a whole nother thing. If that drone hits somebody, you're the one that disabled the drone, it, you know, are even though your gunshot didn't result directly in their injury or death, you know, are you still held accountable? My thought would be, yes, you know, that, that would certainly be on you at that point.
1: I mean, if they have any sort of information or, or evidence that you were the person that originally shot the the bullet or the shell or whatever into the drone, then yeah, I mean, you're obviously going to be held accountable. Um, another thing too is like, I mean, obviously with the trajectory of the aircraft, the speed, uh, the wind gusts, you know, because I mean, if you're 300 feet in the air, you, you obviously you're, you're under the impression too that like, so the wind speed at ground level is probably double or triple what it is at 300 feet too. So you're also gonna have some sort of a wind drift or a wind push, you know. If the drone's coming this way and there's a crosswind, it's gonna hit the drone as soon as it's falling and then it's gonna go, you know, another 150, 200 yards out mm-hmm. that way after you get done shooting it. So, I mean, that's, if it lands in a road and then immediately hits a car, and not only have you already, you know, shot down a drone, doing something illegal to begin with, but now you've just caused some sort of a car accident at that point. Yeah. So, and that's another thing too, is like flying over roads type of thing. It's like, I mean, how is, how is Amazon and the FAA going to handle that too? Cause I mean, most every single road and, you know, at least even in my town, like our two main roads are always busy even the road that I live on is super busy all the time too. So, I mean, is it going to be flying straight over houses? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point. And you know,
0: the, I guess it would come into what kind of insurance does, will Amazon be required to carry, you know, if their drone, let's say it's totally uninhibited by any, any outside force, but their drone falls out of the air and hits a vehicle crossing the road, hits a pedestrian, you know, hits somebody's house or property, you know, at that point, it, yeah, I mean, it'll be easy to track whoever that drone belongs to down, but what's the process for that? You know, how does that, how does, how does that get handled? Um, you know, who does that person contact? I mean, other than the company, who do they contact to, you know, take it to a litigation phase? There, There's a lot of undetermined variables that come into incorporating this technology on a widespread infrastructure scale where you're actually using it in that capacity. I, I totally agree with that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I guess if it caused some sort of a property damage, I mean, I've clearly you're going to have, if you have homeowners insurance or renters insurance that you're going to have to contact them, mm-hmm. let them know, then you're probably going to have to do the same thing. Contact Amazon. Like, Hey, your, your drone just dropped out of the sky and it broke through my ceiling or damaged my awning or something like that. And so, I'm sure that there's going to be something, you know, it's, it's going to be like if you got in a car accident, like a, a small fender bender or something, you're going to have to exchange insurance policies and stuff like that. You don't to have to get every, everything taken care of. But
0: it is interesting, though, how they're willing to like with with just regular drone pilots, not the big boys like Amazon, you know, those places, but just regular drone pilots. They're very, very strict. The FAA is about rules where you fly, who you fly over, when you fly over them. But all of a sudden, money comes into play, and we've got you know the, these these big players that are going to be using airspace for the, you know purposes that will bolster the economy and line the pockets of the FAA most likely and the federal government with money. Now all of a sudden, they're sort of turning a blind eye to some of that stuff because I, I think I agree with your notion that it will certainly be more relaxed for them in terms of who they can fly over, when they can fly over it, and how often they can do it. And I can't help but think if the recent rule changes that come along with uh, remote ID, including nighttime operation and flying over people, aren't somehow, haven't, haven't somehow been advanced by the fact that these big players are coming into the drone world and are going to be using that technology to
1: bolster the economy and line the federal government with money. Yeah. And, and I think that's exactly like, I mean, you just kind of hit it on the head because you had Amazon, you had UPS, you had all these other large companies that all pumped a lot of money into the FAA and said, Hey, listen, we really need, we need this airspace. You know, we need to be able to like get packages and get stuff in and out and like so they jumped a lot of money so they could all get their part i think it's part 135 mm-hmm. if i remember correctly so i mean they all applied they all paid their dues and they got approved and the FAA was cool with it and so like screw the little guy kind of thing yeah um because if it weren't for everybody that jumped on the drone bandwagon then they probably wouldn't have even got to that point i mean yeah. not to, not to say that that would have been a good thing or a bad thing but I mean, they saw that, and they knew that more and more people were getting engaged in drones, and they became a super popular thing. And they're like, you know, what? We could probably take that technology and outfit and use it for our advantage. And so that just kind of screwed every, you know, every drone pilot, every small creator over. That's why, I, like, I literally, as soon as I learned that, the, that Amazon was a portion of the FAA's Remote ID, like, I quit ordering from Amazon. <laughs> yeah, I, mine, mine goes deeper,
0: and I've made references on my channel to this, and I've made references everywhere to this. Uh, but I have this imaginary uh, feud with Jeff Bezos. And <laughs> where That's he sense. actually acknowledges that I exist and he knows that I'm a person and we just have this constant back and forth. But ever since I learned that he was on the trajectory to become the world's first trillionaire, uh, I've stopped patronizing Amazon. It's I, I would be totally ignorant to sit here or arrogant to sit here and say that they don't have this revolutionary service that has made e-commerce just so much easier. I mean, Amazon's, the service and the products that they offer Second to none. They're doing it better than anybody else. And you can't ignore that. But at the same time, it's sort of grown into this powerhouse that I'm afraid we can't stop now. You know, you look at the ideas they have for not just drones, but their their employee less uh, grocery stores that they're looking to implement here in the near future. I, you know all of this this shipping where you get free shipping if you sign up with Amazon Prime, you get guaranteed shipping within 24 hours if you live in certain zones in the United States. It, it's just mind blowing how powerful that company's become. And yeah. I, I agree with you. I think the best way to combat that is, and very similar to how I reacted with AirMap when they came out and took the stance they did, just I immediately cold turkey stop using them. It, it's just it, it's the only way that you can win against companies like that is if everybody just stops patronizing them
1: yeah i uh i don't remember i think i might have the link on my uh on my computer i'll have to see if i can find it and and send it to you there's another website that i used to use all the time and i forget the name of it off the top of my head but they had a really good intuitive mapping system especially for like cities and they like they gave you every single square how high you could go legally, you know, if it was in an NFC or if you were in under controlled airspace, it gave you like each tier, and I'll have to see if I can find that. I don't think it's, I don't think it's an app, but uh, I mean, I, I used AirMap for a little bit, and then I learned about Kitty Hawk, and I basically signed up with Kitty Hawk just so I could use it for commercial purposes and mm-hmm. that, and I haven't really looked back, but. I know that Air Maps and Kitty Hawk have both kind of had their dues with like certain people that other people weren't like chill with. So I don't know. Yeah. I, there's no I, real good map for that or app for it.
0: Not yet. Not, I, and I think that that's only a matter of time before an app does come out that sort of is able to stand up for the little guy, uh, you know, take that stance and still provide that service in, in the way that AirMap and Kitty Hawk does. Because the, the fact of the matter is as much as I disagree with what AirMap did, and I'm sort of, you know, putting them in, in purgatory at this point, in my opinion, um, the, the service that they offered and the way that they offered it was, they, they were one of the best apps. Uh, and it really oh, they were, they it upset me thing. when they came out and did that because, you know, I, I was so familiar with AirMap, how it worked, you know, where what I needed to look for on their, their interface, to know whether or not I could fly in a certain area, so it really bummed me out when they took that stance because immediately I was just like, "Well, you're done. I, I can't, I can't use you anymore, no matter how good you are." And I switched over to Kitty Hawk, and there's been a little bit of a learning curve for me, but overall, I mean, the interface is just as intuitive, if not more. It's just, it's just presented differently. And yeah. I know that there's some people that also have beef with Kitty Hawk, but overall, you know, the stances that they've taken far less uh, you know underway what air map has done recently
1: yeah that the whole air map thing kind of reminds me of what uh robin hood just did for all the meme traders <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i mean that that makes a lot of sense but yeah um yeah i don't i don't think that there's going to be any way that we could ever really stop amazon from becoming what it is and like at this point like i mean jeff bezos is leaving amazon so i mean at this point, it's not even really Kim anymore. It uh, isn't, and- but yeah, I just—I mean, there's there's nothing really because I mean they revolutionized how to order and purchase things on the internet, and it was all it was like the Walmart of the internet type of thing. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you're never gonna beat that. And it's the same re- reason why I don't shop at Walmart, unless I absolutely have to go there.
0: Yeah. And it is funny. You sort of start to box yourself in with all the boycotts because it's like, ah, shit, I I needed this, but now I can't get it anywhere else except for Amazon or Walmart. And it's like, I guess I got to do it now.
1: Yeah. That's the thing is like, so, so once I stopped using Amazon and going to Walmart to purchase things, like I generally, I generally don't buy a lot of like, weird, nuancy things. I, I guess if I don't know how you want to consider that, like just like weird odd end items, but everything that I've ordered in the past year and a half that I've stopped using Amazon, uh, I've easily been able to find on other websites for the same price, if not, maybe a little bit cheaper. Like I use BH photo, um, BH, uh, I've found stuff on BH that is actually cheaper than on Amazon. And it's just like, sometimes you just have to kind of like look, Yeah. Um, not everybody has an extra website that they go on and shop on, but uh, a lot of other creators on like YouTube even have like, they've, you know, like, Hey, I, I rented this from BH or I got this from bhphoto.com. And like, so I just kind of like kept browsing through there and like some of the stuff that you get on Amazon is like, it's jacked up because people include extra things like memory cards bags and it's like do you really need that extra stuff because you can buy so i don't know most everybody can go to like target or best buy or whatever but like the 64 sandisk memory cards that most everybody gets with like a camera kit like They're like eight dollars at Walmart. Yeah, and you're probably paying an extra twenty or thirty four on Amazon when you buy like a, a a photography kit bundle. So it's like, I mean, if you really price pieces together, it's like sometimes you can actually make out better by not by not buying it like that. So yeah, I, it's just things to keep in mind.
0: Yeah, and I you know bh Photo photos sort of was a lifesaver for me in a way as well because I I wanted to make that transition and. Purchasing equipment from DJI is it, you, first off, you're getting it at the price it's actually supposed to be at. So that's right. a plus, but it's a pain. It's shipping from China. So it yeah. usually takes you like three or four weeks at the minimum to actually get what you ordered. So yeah. unless you've got like super foresight, you're able to see way ahead and understand what you need. It, it may be too late at that point, but b Photo has sort of filled that void, especially with it being in New York city. It, typically when I order something from b if it's in stock, I have it within two business days. So it's, yeah. it, I almost always get it with regular shipping within two business days of ordering it. So it, it has been a big thing. And you're right. If you dig a little bit, y- you can find better pricing and you can find people that aren't making a, you know, an un- obscene fortune off of the backs of other people.
1: Yeah. And, uh, I will say this much too. is like, so, I mean, B and H is, it's good. Uh, unless you need it, like absolutely need it right now. Like, uh, for this instance right here, I had to go find a 10 foot USDC cable. <laughs> so, uh, I was going to go to Walmart and I was actually right near target. So I just hopped into the target and I found one for like 14 bucks or whatever. But, um, yeah, sometimes you can, you can definitely find things even like local if you need it. Uh, like I'll drive to Best Buy if I need like some, something for like camera gear. And I know I can't get it up. There's a local camera shop, but it's like in Newport Richie, So it's like a 35, 40 minute drive from my house. Um, yeah. If I don't want to drive there, I mean, I'll just go to the Best Buy and pick up what I need if they have it. But and I don't even mind yeah. Best Buy so much because Best Buy at this point is, is sort of, they're, they're a big company that
0: certainly they're, they're a very big company, but you know, yeah. next compared to Amazon, I would spend money at Best Buy all day compared to Amazon because I know that the sales structure too, like the guys that, the, the people, not guys, the people on the floor that are selling to you more often than not, if it's a big enough ticket item, they're earning commission off of the things they sell you. So, it, oh, so yeah. I know that I'm giving somebody, it may not, may not be a local company, but I know I'm giving somebody that lives locally,
1: uh, you know, a bump in their pay through commission by buying something from Best Buy. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like, like when I, I ordered my Mavic 2 Pro, um, almost a year ago now. It was in like April. I ordered it from Best Buy. They had it in stock. I went in and picked it up the same day. And uh, I think if I, if, if I remember correctly, I was looking at prices on DJI's website and the price on Best Buy and DJI were pretty close. So I was like, well, I'm like, I can get it today. I don't have to wait like three weeks for it to ship from DJI. So I was like, I'll just Best Buy is close. Yeah. So, and that's <laughs> like... It's, it's more of like, it's more of a convenience fee. Like if you can wait, if you, if you have the option to wait, then just order it. But if you need it like immediately, I mean, you're going to pay a convenience fee either way. Yeah. That's the way I look at it. And it's like, you're buying it from a local store. Maybe like if there was a local camera store that was around here, I would be in there all the time. i would probably apply for a job there. <laughs> well, it's yeah. Like, and that's the other side of it too it's like yeah, there there's certainly perks
0: to going lo- super local too because like you said you may be paying a higher rate because the markup in local stores typically depending upon the industry that the store falls within can sometimes be more expensive than like the chain stores and that has to do with just the way that they order their goods in and the deals and the partnerships they make with the manufacturers but the the other side of that is there's opportunities that way, you know. If you exhibit enough interest, or you have enough interest in a particular topic that applies to that store, well, right, you can get a job. And a lot of
1: the times, those same companies have like pretty steep discounts for their employees. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, like there's, I wouldn't say that there's enough. There's not enough like small like mom and pop job camera stores anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that there's like like I said, there's one that's in Newport Richie. That's like the Pasco camera exchange. So like I've been in there once or twice a couple of times, but other than that, I mean, it's, it's kind of a far drive. So I don't really see myself going there that often, but everything that I've ever ordered camera wise or camera gear wise, like I didn't need it right away. So I had no issue with ordering it and waiting four or five days to get it type of thing. So yeah, if they were closer, I would be in there all the time buying camera gear. It's like, the only stores that we have around here specifically is like i mean it's all big box retail it's all big box food chains we live in like a big box town yeah and i i'm fortunate not not so much with the tech side because
0: lancaster certainly falls into the same category i mean the only technology stores that we have that are dedicated to just tech are best buys i mean we have three best buys within reasonable driving distance Um, um But in terms of like restaurants and stuff like that, we have a lot of mom and pop shops, so you can go anywhere and get, you know, something that's a, a, you know really high quality and it's not, you know, out of a box that they micro, you know, like Olive Garden who just throws yeah. the pasta in a box and, you know, microwaves it. But um, yeah, I, it just, it's just the changing of the landscape. And I think that people have this paranoia that mom and pop shops are going away. I don't think that's the case. I think that they they're getting smarter. I think that there's, you know, people that are entrepreneurs that are opening their own businesses are being much more choosy about what kind of services they offer. So you may not have a mom and pop shop like a general store anymore. Those things have gone away, but take all of those categories and separate them out. And the ones that make sense to sort of have a dedicated store for, that's where you're starting to see those those types of businesses pop up.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we still have like really small niche, like mom and pop, like restaurants and stuff around here. There's a few, like, kind of, like, like, like vintage, like, thrift stores where, like, they go to, like, estate sales and stuff, and they find, like, really old vintage, like, cool stuff that you would find and, uh, like, antique stores and stuff like that. And so, like, there's a bunch of those around here, but there's nothing really, like, when I used to work at the liquor store, I used to tell my old bosses all the time, like, there needs to be more, like, niche businesses around here because everything everything is, like, big box retail. Everything's, like, super huge fast food chains. Everything's, like, super huge fast, uh, like, restaurant chains. Like, when you really look at, like, the businesses that are around here as a whole, like, the only things that are really kind of, like, small are, like, uh, like cell phone repair shops, vape stores, uh, like, food, like, mom and pop food, uh, restaurants, um, like other small little businesses that like, they're like antique stores and stuff. And that's like kind of the only things that we have around here. I think especially in smaller towns, you would probably see a better, like a better turnaround from people not shopping at such a large scale local retailer, because it's really hard for people not to shop there just because everything is so cheap. And everybody wants everything to be made in america and everybody wants everything to be like low price and so like you kind of have to choose between the two you want low prices or you want to be to be made in america and then like are you always going to shop are you always going to shop at a small local retailer and it's probably not but if if it's something like that's your niche like electronics or video games uh computer stuff like I mean, would you rather spend a little bit more to get it, you know, to help support a local business or are you just always looking for like the cheapest discounted deal? Cause I mean, at the end of the day, if you're not, I, I try to shop small and local whenever I can, like at breweries and, you know, like family owned restaurants and stuff like that. So like, it really all depends. Like I think America has grown to just love low prices too much mm. type of thing. Low prices yeah. and convenience—they—they they like to yeah. have
0: everything at their fingertips as quickly as possible for as little money as possible.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. It, it's kind of it's kind of sad because like especially during 2020, it's like when you really think about the the coronavirus, whether people believe it, it was a real thing or a hoax, is beyond me. But there was a lot of really small businesses that were shut down and almost put out a business entirely because they couldn't survive on paying their employees and staying closed that long mm. and when you really think about like for for me especially like our Walmart our Publix's our Winn-Dixie's Targets like all of those things stayed open and all of the other small businesses were shut down and it's like People went there, people went to like big box retailers just to like hang out because they had nothing else to do type of thing. And so like they were spending all their money, you know, in like these big chain stores and like all these other small local businesses were shut down or were losing money because people couldn't go out to like a bar or restaurant and hang out type of thing. And it's like, eventually what is going to happen is like, if you don't support those small local businesses and they're just going to kind of disappear and we're just going to be left with Amazons and Walmarts. Hmm that don't
0: really care, you know, that's that's the, right. the tough thing. And it, I think the the conflict with that and all the shutdowns, and again, I, I've stated this before in videos i posted on YouTube, I don't care where my audience falls politically, I have my beliefs, but I don't like to really express them too much just, just because I like everybody to feel welcome. But the, the fact of the matter is you're exactly right. Small businesses, whether the the shutdowns were a good thing or a bad thing or how well they were handled or how poorly they were handled, the, the, the lockdowns severely stunted local businesses especially and the conflict comes in with the the players like Walmart and the bigger stores that offer not just a particular niche category but they they can justify staying open because they say look yeah we sell all of this stuff over here that really isn't necessary to sustaining life but we also we also sell groceries so we should, right. we are essential so we should be able to stay open in my opinion if you really want to curb that and keep those stores from taking advantage of the fact that they have no small time local competition, you sort of have to mitigate what they're allowed to sell and what they're not allowed to sell, you know, shut down your stuff that is non-essential. Like you are not allowed to sell your computer games stuff that doesn't, you you don't need, but you are allowed to make sales out of your grocery aisle. Like that's, that's fine. But again, it comes down to how how much control do you want to give your government over, you know, the privatized sector. It, It, there's just no real right one size fits all answer. I think everybody can agree that the lockdowns overall were handled rather poorly and just didn't turn out the way that anybody really wanted them to. Yeah, um, it, it, and if you, it, if I wanted to show my hand a little bit about where I stand in my opinion, we could have avoided all of it by simply just complying with the, the mask mandates. You know, if, if everybody yeah. just just sucked it up and wore their mask, those small time shops wouldn't have had to close their doors to mitigate that risk. They could have kept them open because we as private citizens were mitigating that risk for them. Sure, they might've had to bring their capacity down to 75%, uh, but that's better than 50% or 25 or completely closed at all, you know, com- you know not open at all. So- yeah. it, you sort of have to look at your responsibility as a, as a citizen, but you also have to look at, you know, how can we do better? And I, I think we, we can all agree that it was not
1: handled well. No, no, they weren't, they weren't handled well at all. And I agree with that a hundred percent because I was working at uh big lots during the pandemic. And it was like, so basically like, I mean, we we're open and people are basically spending their entire like stimulus checks on like new couches and new bed sets and furniture and stuff. And it's like, we, we sold groceries, but were new couches and bed sets really essential to any of those businesses? And I would say no, especially for the, for the pure fact that people, number one, it's like, you guys are just, you're coming in here to like spend your money because you're bored of sitting at your house type of thing. And it's like, there are a lot of very small businesses that I am friends with people that own, you know, like, like breweries and stuff and i was like they were lit- legitimately hurting because they couldn't afford to pay employees because they couldn't stay open and it's like those people didn't have jobs and it's like you guys are in here buying furniture and there are people as businesses that are literally being destroyed because you guys can't wear a mask and you can't like participate in a group effort type of thing so i just it, it kind of grinded my gears
0: yeah yeah and I think that's, that's one of the things that sort of gets me too is just the, the, the conflict of, you know, these are my personal freedoms, but also like with those freedoms come responsibilities too. So you sort of have to understand that as a citizen, but, and I don't want to cut things short, but we are out of time. Uh, I did want to get one last thing in with you. Uh, First off, I really greatly appreciate you being our first guest ever. Uh, I have you back on as soon as possible. I appreciate Uh, it. Thank you. But but before we go, I do want to give you a chance to to stand on the soapbox. Uh, I I don't have a huge following, but I hope that I have some diverse followers that might jump over to your page and like what you do too. So you can, you give us an idea what you got coming up, any projects you have in mind and where we can
1: find your work, both on YouTube and Instagram. Um, Well, and so the only problem with YouTube is, is I don't have a, a customizable youtube link so basically anything that's on my youtube is also in my profile on my instagram page which is jordan handworker visuals I know that sounds a lot longer than most people want to remember but uh twitter is jordan h visuals and then um basically just my youtube which i might change the name of it at some point but i'm not 100 sure if i will but that's shoot edit repeat so, I don't really have anything in particular. and I have a few videos coming up on YouTube. Uh, I do kind of want to like start like a short, like a kind of like a two or three minute, like movie videos. I don't know if that makes sense to you guys, but like I, I, I have some ideas that I, I think I might start kind of taking advantage of. I might do like a little storyboard videos, kind of like horror, like horror short movies. For YouTube, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see That's, what
0: happens. That sounds interesting. And uh just for anybody, it, he does have a, sort of a long Instagram handle name, <laughs> but uh for anybody that is interested in checking him out, I'm going to link all of his social profiles in the description of this video. So uh, make sure you check that out. So I, I'm excited to see where your projects go and where your social platforms take you. It, it's sort of nice. I have a couple of people that I'm, I'm connected with on social media, and you're one of them that are sort of in the same caliber as I am in terms of our growth on these platforms. So it's cool to see each other grow and sort of witness that and the different directions we take. But I, again, I really appreciate you coming on today, Jordan. This has been an awesome experience and I hope to have you on again real soon.
1: Yeah, absolutely, man. I, I appreciate you having me on. I mean, this is a blast. Uh, I really hope to do it again. Um, maybe we can get like a, a two couple of more people and just get like a crazy thing going on where it's just like millions of people and we're all doing like a webcast together type of thing. I think that would uh, be great. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think maybe we can get some, like some, uh, some big name stars if this takes off, but, uh, yeah, man, I, I highly appreciate this. I, I huge thank you to you for allowing me to be the first inaugural guest on your show. Yeah, absolutely, man. And, uh, until next time, I'm Chris, the drone geek,
0: as Jordan Handworker, and we are out of here. Peace. <laughs>